0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live.
1: Good morning. It's Monday. It's the end of half-term for all of us, whether we had it last week or not. And we have never yearned for an extra week of holiday more. I'm Tabitha McIntosh here in the breakfast slot for the next two weeks, while Mal takes a well-deserved break. And today, I am talking all things original sin and British education.
0: dramatic
1: music as fully befits the topic of our show today, which is the innate depravity of humankind, especially those those vipers of sin uh, infants. Let's talk original sin, people. So I'll try to keep this as light as possible, as befitting a seven in the morning show on the first Monday after half term. Um, We may be going into our classrooms unwillingly, but even more so when we consider the total depravity of our students. Um, Why are we talking about original sin? Why have so many of you got the phrase muted? Why has everyone from The Spectator to The Telegraph published an article on the inherent sinfulness of human beings? Uh, Well, as ever, your host is on a one-woman mission to historicize EduTwitter beef, and this is one of the oddest EduTwitter beefs ever to beave. New verb just dropped, beave. Uh, Headmistress of Michaela School and newly appointed social mobility czar, Catherine Burblesing evoked original sin at the end of last week to explain why children and young people need constant moral guidance and correction. Left to their own devices, she claimed in 2016, in one of my favourite tweets of all time, uh, there will be not just tearing insects apart. No, no, that, that would just be the beginning left to their own devices, they would rapidly progress to trampling on cats and dogs, just crushing them underfoot without the guiding hand of education. So if you were lucky enough to miss um, this particular edu beef, the original tweet had managed to turn original sin into a trending Twitter topic 24 hours later, as the nation's terminally online commentariat, uh, in which I include myself, weighed in with their thoughts. So it was Hobbes and Rousseau all over the shop, uh, regular denunciations of medievalism, and lots of inveighing against Catholicism of all things. People heard the phrase original sin, and like the good British people since the Reformation, they thought Catholic. So, so much anti-Catholicism on the timeline. Um, If the anachrony, the sort of, wrongly timed thing? Why are we talking Hobbes, Rousseau, but also medieval and also St. Augustine and also Catholicism? If the theological confusion of those references struck you like a series of blows to your early morning head, you're not alone. So we'll do some basic facts. So I know, I know first thing on a Monday morning, first thing of term, what you really want is to hear all about the history of the doctrine of original sin. And a uh, But because you're so desperate for it i'm going to keep you waiting for a minute and go to the news with gail glenn
0: this is teachers talk radio and this is teachers talk radio news
2: this is your latest teachers talk radio news with gail glenn In Scotland, more than 226,000 pupils have additional needs and this figure has increased by 70,000 since 2010. The Scotsman newspaper has reported the number of coordinated support plans has more than halved during this time. In England, the number of statutory education, health and care plans, similar to CSPs, has risen by almost 90,000 in five years. Pro-union campaign group Scotland and Union said the drop in numbers was deeply worrying. Their chief executive Pamela Nash said every youngster in Scotland should have the correct support in place to help them reach their full potential. For the most vulnerable coordinated support plans are essential giving parents carers and children legal rights. A Scottish Government spokesperson said all children and young people should receive all the support that they need to reach their potential. Local authorities are responsible for identifying and meeting the additional support needs of their pupils. NHS teams in England are set to visit over 800 schools next week to offer all 12 to 15 year olds a COVID-19 vaccination. The national booking system also opened last week to enable extra vaccinations during half term. In total, more than 600,000 young people have been vaccinated since the end of September. Dr. Nikki Kanani, GP, and Deputy Lead of the NHS COVID-19 Vaccine Programme said, it has been great to see that tens of thousands of families have either booked or already been for their child's COVID-19 vaccination during half term. As our children return to classrooms, our efforts to vaccinate children will not stop. Hundreds more schools will be vaccinating this week. It's really important That we continue with the same enthusiasm if we want to ensure children get to stay in the classroom with their fellow pupils this winter and so i encourage all parents and guardians to head online the information on vaccinating your child so you can make an informed decision this has been your daily education news briefing
1: thanks as ever to gail for the news Uh, just a message from one of our sponsors before we continue Uh, one of the sponsors of this show is oxford university press if you need support with your phonics teaching oxford university press now has three department for education validated programs to help you read write incorporated phonics floppies phonics and the brand new essential letters and sounds essential letters and sounds will get all your children reading well quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. To find out more about these programmes and receive support from your OUP expert local education consultant, visit www.oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. That is www.oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Right, everyone, uh, I promised you, excited people, that the basic history of original sin, and please chime in to disagree with me or pick sides as we go along here. So, the basic facts. The doctrine of original sin, as as cited metaphorically by Catherine Burblesingh, was formulated in the fifth century by Augustine of Hippo. In theological conversation, I know, I know you're gripped for your commute into school, with Pelagius. So original sin, according to Augustine, consists of the guilt of Adam, which all humans inherit. So earlier Christian authors had taught that the elements of physical death, moral weakness um, and sin, propensity within original sin, Augustine's the first one to add the concept of inherited guilt from Adam, so that you're you're just born sinful. Um, So an infant is eternally damned at birth. They have to be baptized. Right. Pelagius, who I have to say, I back in this fight, um, argued that humans were capable of leading a morally good life. And thus, to Augustine, that was denying both the importance of baptism, and also the teaching that God is the giver of all that's good, right? So that's our basic facts. We've got Augustine, it's the late fourth, uh, early fifth century. And he said, no, infants are damned at birth. Now, that is, well, no, we've got another name. Enter John Cassian, who otherwise you can forget about, who manages to square this circle. Do we have free will to be good? Do we have a propensity to good? Are we just evil? Who can tell? It's terribly confusing. Everyone's fighting about it. The Eastern church rejects it altogether. They're having none of it. Um, and Cassian says, humans have free will to choose good and God. I promise you, you're gonna see where it's going towards education very shortly. But all goodness comes from God, including that capacity and the prompt to choose. So yeah, we can be good, but the impulse to goodness comes from God. So we're simultaneously completely sinful, but also we can be good if we choose, but only because of God. So we're keeping all our elements in play there. Human nature is fallen. It's totally depraved, but it's not really. It's not completely depraved. And that is it for the next thousand years. That's the Catholic Church. All the people saying "ooh, original sin," talking about Catholicism, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, on Twitter—really, really bad on their basic history, guys. I'm sorry, you needed to have paid more attention in Key Stage Three and Four, um, because it's the Reformation where the original sin, as we understand it, as we're using it in education, really comes into play, and it's when children get really, really, really important. So we enter the Reformation and enter the version of original sin that has most to do with the educational tradition that Ms Singh was evoking in her tweets. Because both Luther and Calvin, our big boys of the Reformation, are convinced that children, infants in utero, are riddled not just with inherited sin, but just chock full of all other kinds of sins, just packed with them. Every single sin, think of it, an embryo has it in utero. As Martin Luther says, uh, all men are full of evil lust and inclinations from their mother's wombs and are unable by nature to have true fear of God or faith in God. So the infant in utero, full of sin. Um, but the grimmest view of children, and, and the one that um, we're going to be looking at today, uh, comes from the king of miserablest theology, John Calvin, and his doctrine of, drumroll please, total depravity. Now, if that sounds cheerful, it, it's not. Uh, total depravity, which is also called radical corruption or a pervasive depravity to its friends. Um, the idea there is that because of man's fall, every person born into the world is enslaved to the service of sin. Here's what Calvin said about babies. Even infants bear their condemnation with them from their mother's womb. For though they have not yet brought forth the fruits of their own iniquity, they have the seed enclosed within themselves. Indeed, their whole nature is a seed of sin. Thus, it cannot but be hateful and abominable to God. In the Calvinist tradition, God hates children. He hates them so much, as we'll see. Um, how does this start functioning with these um, Protestant educational materials for children? Well, how do you educate hateful and abominable natures, really? I mean, what, what do you do with a creature that even in utero is full of, of, of sexual lust and sin and, and every form of human depravity? Well, it turns out you do it by relentlessly drilling them about their own total depravity, and then by encouraging to think about their filthy sinfulness, At every moment possible, preferably cry about it. Sometimes die over it. But either way, you're consciously reflecting upon what a terrible, terrible, terrible child you are. Um, Think of it as metacognition for the infant soul. Um, We got uh, some some wonderful examples, and possibly the worst title of a book I've ever seen from um, my people, the hardline Puritans who moved to the eastern seaboard of, of. what was then the British colonies. Uh, John Cotton, in 1656, wrote a tract very specifically for children, a lovely children's book titled, and this is the strangest title I've ever heard, Spiritual Milk for Boston Babes in Either England, Drawn Out of the Breasts of Both Testaments. Shout out to Patrick Cragg, who pointed out that the breasts of both chestaments was just sitting there for a pun and wasn't taken up. Um, now the whole thing is done. I'm a big fan of dialogic learning, but um, th- these early educational tracks contain the most deranged dialogic learning possible, um, and that goes on right up until the early 19th century. Papa, why do not you show us the globes? Why, yes, Henry, the globes are like this. This is the the Calvinist version. So the whole thing is a series of questions and answers that children are encouraged to chant back. Right. Question: Are you then born a sinner? Answer: I was conceived in sin and born in iniquity. Question: What is your birth sin? Answer: Adam's sin imputed to me and a corrupt nature dwelling in me. Question: What is your corrupt nature? Answer: My corrupt nature is empty of grace, bent unto sin and only unto sin and that continually. Not a very happy message. Um <laughs> so uh, oh yeah and what is sin that seems quite important if we're saying that you're completely full of sin sin is the transgression of the law so in this Puritan Calvinist version of childhood children are born as transgressors all they want to do is break laws and and as we'll see some of the the later writing which takes on the trappings of fiction um, in order to promote this this message for children very much shows them being drawn to breaking of law continually. So it's it's really a very perfect model for um, an extremely top-down rules-based school model. Uh, Of course children need these because of course children are driven to sin. As Martin B says, yes, they are seeds of sin. They're just the sort of fleshy casings of the sin seed, as it were, Martin, Um, like almonds or something. So that's exciting stuff, but it's about to get more exciting with the incredibly popular book by uh, James Janeway, published in uh, 1671. Ah, yeah, I'm getting, this is what I wanted. I wanted people to come back. Not sure you're right that in Calvinist theology, God hates children. He finds the sin abominable. And the solution is not reflection on depravity, while this is necessary stage rather the solution having acknowledged that you've turned away from God is to turn towards Jesus as your savior. Yeah, I probably can't. Yeah, I feel your tone is slightly derisive. You're right. I am being too mean. Um, I'm not being mean about Calvinism. I have to say, or Calvin, um, I'm really being mean about my ancestors, the, the Puritans, um, the, uh, the, the John Cottons and the, the Cotton Mathers and how they applied it. So in their application, um, god was very anti-children we'll see that in jonathan edwards in a minute who has lots to say about how they're vipers and stupid until as you say they turn towards jesus as the savior at which point they can be recognized as as human beings with moral compass sort of thing um yeah uh right so this one um a token for children is exactly that exactly what um i don't know how to say your username ian shinto him anyway or her, has um, told us about, which is the opportunity for children to reflect on their depravity, but then also in order to turn to Jesus, right, and and be saved. So this book um, by James Janeway in 1671 is a token for children, a gift for children, being an exact account of the conversion, holy and exemplary lives and joyful deaths of several young children in two parts. Um, Driven, I should think enormously, by the rate of um, infant mortality and child mortality, as well as by um, the, the importance of the salvation of one's soul, most of these early texts dwell very extensively on deathbed scenes, um, on conversion, on the possibility that one will not be saved and, and what the consequences might be. So this one has an introduction to parents and then an introduction to children. So I'm gonna start with the introduction to parents. It's a series of, of rhetorical questions. Are the souls of your children of no value? Are you willing that they should be brands of hell? Are you indifferent whether they be damned or saved? Shall the devil run away with them without control? Will you not use your utmost endeavor to deliver them from the wrath to come? You see that they are not subjects uncapable of the grace of God. Whatever you think of them, Christ does not slight them. They are not too little to die, they are not too little to go to hell, they are not too little to serve their great master, too little to go to heaven, for of such is the kingdom of God, and will not a possibility of their conversion and salvation put you upon the greatest diligence to teach them. So Janeway's entire model here is that parents aren't taking responsibility for their children's um, salvation, for their children's moral development, and for their children's souls. And what's really crucial here is that death will be coming. Like, and, and these children will go to hell unless they're saved. Um, I think we can tie that particular kind of jeremiad to the parents as the poor instructors, poor moral instructors of children, to the constant jeremiads that we get in the press about bad parenting generally. So it's not so much that this is a strange and unnatural and out of... Um, out of sync with our so-called secular society sort of way of thinking it's really very much the same you have simultaneously a genuine theological concern about the salvation of children but at the same time you're very much thinking about bad parenting bad parenting is 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 what we're talking about here um say so to children um again to go back to the last point you know we, we don't hate children they are, as he says, you may hear now, my dear lambs, what other good children have done. And remember how they wept and prayed by themselves, how earnestly they cried out for an interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. May you now read how dutiful they were to their parents, how diligent at their books, how ready to learn the scripture and the catechisms. They did their homework, the good children. They did their homework, they learned to read. They were highly literate and they spent their time reading books. So the fact that it's about salvation, um is less relevant and and less out of sync. Again, that the whole discussion that happened online very much implied that the discussion of original sin was somehow deeply anachronistic, um, had no bearing on on current reformist talk or thinking, or educational talk and thinking. But if we, we look at what's being said here, it's really very much the same thing. You need to do homework, you need to do lots of independent study, Parents who don't pay attention to their children's development, both moral and and literary, to do with literacy, um, are are failing. And it's very, very important that children be saved, educated, et cetera. So, uh, (laughs) we have a series of questions. I mean, it starts off quite mild. Hear me, little lambs. Don't you want to go to heaven? Don't you want to read about these, these children who worked really hard? the sort of Michaela Academy of of infant spirituality. And then it it escalates into a series of questions that the child should ask themselves while reading the book. Are you willing to go to hell to be burned with the devil and his angels? Would you be in the same condition as naughty children? Oh, hell is a terrible place. And then number five, would you not do anything in the world rather than be thrown into hellfire? Would you not do anything in the world to get Christ's grace and glory? And then number six, well now what will you do will you read this book a little because your good mother will make you do it and because it's a little new book but as soon as ever you have done run out to play and never think of it um the growth of literacy early childhood literacy um goes hand in hand with uh with these kinds of books so yeah they're really inseparable yeah I mean that's the thing we've got so so again I'm getting this beautiful correction and there is a huge difference between moral development and salvation and in the Calvinist tradition, those are not the same thing. But what I'm saying here is that we have two things sort of at war with each other, not in theology and not in the church, but in the text written for children. Right? So salvation, very important point, does not equate to moral development because salvation is the acceptance of Jesus's morality. This is, again, a, a, a listener comment. Moral development should be a natural consequence of being saved, but the two are not equivalent. Right, when the writer talks about teaching, I imagine they're talking about the word of God. Exactly, so that confusion is, was sort of mirrored, I think, in Edu Twitter. We got on the one hand, the reformist literacy, moral development. On the other hand, there is no moral development. Um, it, does, it, it does not equate to salvation. We got two separate impulses and we'll see them developing throughout the 18th century. As I'm sure if anyone has tuned in today, You're really excited to find that we're digging deep down into the development of Puritan cultural practices in 18th century colonial America. Hey, that's my show, (laughs) as ever, historicizing things you really didn't want historicized forever. Now, again, that we are not gonna be really focusing enormously on the ins and outs of, calvinist theology is it developed with armenianism at, at contra to armenianism and uh, threats of creeping armenianism and if you don't know what armenianism is i urge you to just look it up yourself because i won't i won't bore you further with that but um yeah i thought it might be nice to find out one of just to give you um the chapter summary of janeway's book right so it's a series of exemplars it's a bit like um one of those teaching walkthroughs you know how to, how to do this in the classroom how to do that in the classroom these are all about good deaths about children that have have expressed the love of jesus so these are the the chapters of the stories example 1 of one eminently converted between 8 and 9 years old with an account of her life and death example 2 of a child that was admirably affected with the things of god when he was between 2 and 3 years old with a brief account of his life and death example 3 of a little girl that was wrought upon when she was between four and five years old with some account of her holy life and her triumphant death. It's just a series of deathbeds. So this is what our, our developing literate middle class children are reading. Um, they're reading these deathbed scenes in order to prompt learning from examples. Um, it's sort of, let's put it in teaching terms, it's sort of like a worked example of of how salvation might work if you are a good child but to go back to our, our important commenter there pointing out the problems with Calvinism there's a s- distinct difference here between the idea of personal growth and development and education and the actual theology that underpins it and the two things don't necessarily work very well together um, I picked one example nine of a child that was very eminent when she was between five and six years old with some memorable passages of her life, because um, she comes from my county. Anne Dane was born at Colebrook in the county of Bucks, who was no sooner able to speak plain and express anything considerable of reason, but she began to act as as if she was sanctified from the very womb. She was very solicitous about her soul, what would become of it when she should die, and where she should live forever, and what she should do to be saved when she was about five years old. She was wont to be oft engaged in secret prayer and pouring out her soul in such a manner as is rarely to be heard of from one of her years. After having occasion to lie at Colebrook, I sent for her father, an old disciple, and desired him to give me some account of his experiences and how the Lord first wrought upon him. Uh, let's go down to her death. Uh, the child was the joy and delight of all Christians thereabouts in those times, who was quickening and raising of the spirits of those that taught her. This poor babe was a great help to both mother and father and her memory is kept to this day. There you go, that's the death. That's what's happening there. So um, these early children's books are just full of these accounts. It's sort of impossible to go back and reconstruct exactly how young children experience them, um, except in some instances, by the time we get to the early 20th century or the 19th century, we have some quite amused reaction to um, one of the books we'll be looking at, The Fairchild Family, where we find out that children didn't necessarily read these books um, in the entirely serious way they were intended but in fact sometimes laughed at them acted them out um saw them for the for the melodrama that they were so hi christiana Ashate, calling in from ghana there uh we so we finished with uh mr jane exciting anthology of children's death almost all of them completely fictional by the way um and then uh we've really got to the Puritan view of childhood by this point so childhood simultaneously full of hope and promise um but very much essentially predicated on a very specific view of human nature um to them and this is all my my ancestors the entire kind of tradition within England and then obviously the people who'd gone to the United States well early colonial America was essentially um that all people including children and infants were eternally separated from God and marred with a corrupt disposition from conception, right? Children are rebels against God, whose individual wills have to be broken through discipline and orderly conduct. They're drawn to rule breaking. Um, Now, this is one of my favorite things. They, (laughs) my American ancestors, the Puritans, believed that godliness increased with age, and (laughs) and they even kind of derived their view of God from this concept. So if God looked like an old man, infants look more like animals. So they were both, That's driven to rule breaking and wildness and ferociousness and sinfulness, but but also just not quite human yet. Right. Um, So (laughs) I love this. This imagery was further emphasized by their inability to walk or talk. So great measures were taken to change these conditions as soon as possible. Very important that you raised up a child to be a, a thinking, fearing, rational child because they are just monstrous, grubby, hungry animals. I mean, did the Puritans love their children and their babies? Of course they did. So these, these things exist simultaneously um, in ways that they're not entirely monstrous. Though, as we will see, um, sometimes there can be so, quite a lot of monstrosity. So then we get to um, to to some of the conceptions that underpin our um, early 19th century history, the Fairchild we're gonna look at. Um, Jonathan Edwards, theologian uh, 18th century American author very famously of sinners in the hands of an angry God um delivered a 1741 sermon especially for children called I love this God is very angry with the sins of children <laughs> just gather them all in and and tell them about how angry God is with them children outside of Christ he says are vipers and until they are awakened until they you know they they can like all of Janeway's children Realize the nature of grace and turn to Jesus, they are naturally very senseless and stupid. So, in this model, educability, the capacity to be taught, the capacity to become literate, is sort of inextricably linked with concepts of child development, um, stages of childhood developing at this point, and also with a particular theology which understands children as drawn to rule breaking and therefore in need of extreme correction at all times. Um, it said, we are but worms and insects, less than insects, nothing at all, yea, less than nothing. What miserable creatures are we all, what nothings, what worms. It is a heinous thing for God to slight you. This is him talking to children. A little, wretched, despicable creature, a worm, a mere nothing and less than nothing. A vile insect that has risen up in contempt against the majesty of heaven and earth. Um, He uses the phrase serpent constantly. Wicked children are in God's sight like young serpents. We hate young snakes. They are children of the devil. The devil is the old serpent and wicked children are his children. And then just in case we're tempted to think that children are naturally innocent, Edwards is here to remind us as innocent as children seem to be to us, yet if they are out of Christ, they are not so in God's sight, but are young vipers and are infinitely more hateful than vipers and are in a most miserable condition as well as grown persons. And they are naturally very senseless and stupid being born as the wild ass's colt. When you have that conception of children and, and innate human nature, obviously, that shapes the way in which you educate them, which is gonna take us to the history of the Fairchild family. But um, this, I have to know, is why uh, they locked my Quaker ancestors up and expelled them from the New England colonies, because when they converted to Quakerism, my ancestors stopped believing in any of this, and the Society of Friends believed instead in inward light, uh, a light that is in all men by the grace of God to lead them to Christ. So their versions of education for children, very, very different if you're not raising young snakes as you can imagine. So the history of the Fairchild family takes us back to Britain and is what I want to talk about today because it's one of those books that we have now culturally forgotten despite the fact that it was pretty much standard fare for all British children between 1818, when it was first published, and about 1910. Um, George Orwell talks about it. You know, He, he remembers reading it. He has a, a wonderful essay on um, the representation of schools in Victorian England, where he talks about the Fairchild family book and reads through the section we're going to look at, the first section, which is very big on original sin, very, very, very big on original sin, and and calls it this evil book. And by the time we get to the 20th century, the fashion for for that kind of thinking about children has passed entirely. And indeed, by the time we get to the middle of the 19th century, it's pretty much disappearing. We start getting texts for children that are just delightful, like Alice in Wonderland. No one dies. There are no deathbeds anymore. Of course, any reader of 19th century fiction will remember plenty of deathbed scenes. Um, But in books specifically for children that's no longer necessarily the predominant message that they're being given Uh, i'll give you the british library rundown of what the uh, history of the fairchild family is so it's a best-selling series for children in 19th century britain Uh, it's originally published in three parts the first part is the um sinful 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 part the second and third parts back off a bit from that and start focusing on things like etiquette and um becoming a successful middle-class educated person. So I think, I hope, as you've seen right the way along from the 17th century till now, we have this developing middle-class, literate, um, increasingly going down to to lower classes, population, um, and improving literature, etiquette literature, how to get ahead in business and life, how to marry well, but also how to save your soul from eternal damnation. All those things are being muddled together in these books for children and in the education systems for them. So, uh, the first volume, the focus is on Emily, Lucy, and Henry, (laughs) Martin says, eradicate sin and then enjoy dinner parties with the head of the Bank of England. Martin has picked up on the fact that I am essentially looking at that, um, that model of like, moral rule reinforcement, cultural capital, the ability to socially rise, um, the habituation of hard work habits, and um, inspecting the, the self and the soul for um, failures of work and application. All of those discussions are absolutely central to a lot of the discussions um, that Ms. sings specifically as the um, social mobility are is very, very big on. The importance of culture. Uh, and there's lots of people in this country pushing that. And indeed, I am historicizing that specifically and saying that comes directly from this tradition. Uh, so, the focus of the first book is on the children, Emily, Lucy, and Henry, their dawning realization that they, as humans, carry original sin and that throughout their lives they must strive for redemption. Um, this is from the very beginning where we're describing the family. Mr. and Mrs. Fairchild loved and feared God and had done so by the mercy of God ever since their younger days. They knew that their hearts were very bad and that they could not be saved by any good thing they could do. On the contrary, that they were by nature fitted only for everlasting punishment, but they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and loved him for having died for them. And they knew he would save them because he saves all those who trust in them. So as um, as a historian of childhood said, most children of the English middle class born into the 19th century may be said to have been brought up on the Fairchild family. Few children of the gentry, someone else points out, kind of escaped the influence of Mrs Sherwood's peculiar genius. So our model of childhood here is that it's drawn to sin and rule breaking, that humans are drawn to sin and rule breaking and that we very much have to be scared straight. Uh, that That's that's a big thing. The role of anecdote in persuading people to hew to, to morality is very, very important. So first of all, published in 1818, um, the headings on the chapters in that first volume, which is, is very specifically concerned with this very Calvinist image model of total depravity. Um, I'll just give you a suggestion of the tone of the book. Man before the fall, the general depravity of mankind in all countries after the fall, uh on envy on the formation of sin in the heart, and rather crucially here, fatal effects of dif- disobedience to parents, so we tie these things together continually in our total depravity literature for children. on the one hand, total depravity, larger theological discussion, make sure you don't go to hell, like Mr. Janeway tells us, uh make sure you 're not a young snake like Mr. Edwards tells us, but also. Follow the rules, obey your parents, do what you need to do in school. Um, A.G. Newell writing for the Evangelical Quarterly. um, The current evangelical, mainstream evangelical thinking has not remained fans of the Fairchild family. There's not many people out there going, you know what, we need to bring the Fairchilds back. So uh, Newell for the Evangelical Quarterly says, it's hard today to read the Fairchild family Without a smile and sometimes a feeling of revulsion. The Fairchilds demonstrate an astonishing severity towards their children. The headings already mentioned reveal the primary message of part one, the total depravity of mankind. And this doctrine is hammered home with relentless vigour. The slowest child reading the book could not possibly mistake its import. There is something of relish in Mrs. Sherwood's unvarying allusion to the subject. Um, why might Mrs. Sherwood? Have been so very <laughs> Martin says, yeah. The whole thing reminds him of Roald Dahl's Children of Maggots from Matilda, which my head of department has on a mug in school. Yeah, the um the the version of the 19th century schoolmaster that people love to fling at people like Catherine Burbel or any of the kind of educational traditionalists is that they're being like 19th century schoolmasters from um Dickens's fiction or we normally go straight to those ones Mr Gradgrind for our utilitarianism or um the incredibly door uh Calvinist schoolmasters in a Jane Eyre when she goes to what's it called I can't remember the name of her school Longwood um but but it's all a bit circular reasoning really because yeah. Well, I'll come back to that. I don't think I don't think it's just, but it's certainly, that's the caricature that they're going from. So when we go to that caricature, we're going to the history of the Fairchild family and the teaching tradition, which is based on that. That's not a teaching tradition, which is aimed at the upper classes. That's not what you would find in Eton at the time or Harrow. This is very much for self-improving, again, self-improving, newly literate, um, increasingly wealthy, Uh, industrial, newly industrial revolution, people looking to improve both their morality and their economic position, all of those things tied together. Um, Right, so Mrs Sherwood's own childhood perhaps can give us a a sense of of why her thing is so grim. This This is her on her own childhood. Now, I've spent a lot of time reading 18th century novels and life writing and diaries and letters. And when she says it was the fashion in the passage I'm about to read you, I can assure you that it was not the fashion at all. All right, ready? It was the fashion for children to wear iron collars around the neck with backboards strapped over the shoulders. To one of these, I was subjected from my sixth to my 13th year. I generally did all my lessons standing in the stocks with this same collar around my neck. It was put on in the morning and seldom taken off till late in the evening. And it was Latin, which I had to study. At the same time, I had the plainest possible food. Dry bread and cold milk were my principal food. And I never sat on a chair in my mother's presence. The interesting thing there, if we're looking at the union of social mobility and, um, and this like emphasis on total depravity, this Calvinist model, which is absolutely what's happening here. Not just her body, but her soul and her mind have to be essentially bound firmly to rules lest they... Um, violate the boundaries of the healthy body, the rightful body, but also sin and temptation. She's being taught Latin. That's really unusual. The fact that she's a girl and she's getting Latin is all part of this. So she's got an iron collar around her neck, a backboard strapped to her shoulder, and she's doing her a mo, a mass, a mat. Girls don't learn Latin. Not then, not throughout most of the 19th century. So this is the same thing again, simultaneously social mobility, deep educational ambition for one's children, including one's girl children, but also coming from a position where the child must adhere to rules, must be made to adhere to rules that children are innately lawbreakers um, by their nature, by their totally depraved, sinful nature, but, but, but that by finding the grace of God and wearing a collar, and straightening their backs and doing their Latin lessons, they can get better, they can improve and not die. So the Fairchilds, like James Janeway's anthology of admirable infant deaths, is positively obsessed with bed-based scenes of intense childhood mortality. Um, as the, to go back to that, that lovely article from the Evangelical Quarterly, Um, The fundamental emphasis on the doctrine of total depravity of mankind with the concomitant interest in deathbeds and the fear of hell would leave Mrs. Sherwood's readers with a grotesque conception of Christianity. Uh, Like I said, it's completely unfair to tar contemporary evangelical education and contemporary Bible-based education with this particular brush. This was its own thing. This was very much a 17th and 18th century Calvinist doctrine of total depravity being expressed in educational models where children were vipers who had to be contained, but also were, you know, educable future middle-class citizens. So let's dig in. But first, another message from one of our sponsors. Uh, one of the sponsors of this show is Mal CPD. If you struggle with people pleasing and find it a constant battle to manage different and difficult personalities, then why not challenge and empower your team through the Mal CPD Essential Coaching Skills for School Leaders course? Alternatively, gain practical skills to become a strong and compassionate leader through the Assertive Leadership and Emotionally Intelligent Leader course. All Mal CPD courses are accredited by the Institute of Leadership and Management. Find out more at www.malcpd.com. That's M-A-L-C-P-D.com. Right, let's have some of the Fairchild families themselves. Now, there are lots of books being written for children in the period. Um, Hannah Moore, an enormous best-selling author um, in a population of what five million in about 8- 1800, 7 million. she sold three million copies of her cheap repository tracks which are again um, didactic texts about moral improvement but also absolutely inextricable from promoting literacy and self-improvement and class mobility so it's much more complicated than just saying oh these these texts and this educational tradition is designed to break children It's designed to promote social mobility and literacy and lots of things that we think are a very good thing. They're really quite inextricable from each other. Um, But also, it lends itself to incredibly bad writing, just such bad writing, and unrealistic writing. So this one, um, just as an introduction to the tone of The Fairchild Family, Volume 1, which is the hardcore volume, is full of moments like this. Oh, papa, said Lucy may we say some verses about mankind having bad hearts? Because everyone knows that no child wants anything more than to to say some verses. Yes, my dear, answered Mr. Fairchild. Then each of the children repeated a verse from the Bible to prove that the nature of man after the fall of Adam is utterly and entirely sinful. Here comes Lucy. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth and beheld it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Emily gives us one about Noah. Henry finishes us off with a short one for I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. And then Mr. Fairchild, rounding it up for his adorable tots, you find by these verses, my dear children, that the heart of every man is entirely and utterly corrupt, and that there is no good in us whatsoever, so that we cannot, without God's help, think even one good thought. This is the dreadful state into which Adam brought himself and his children by his disobedience. He made us children of wrath and the heirs of hell. But at the very same time. Okay, sorry, I, I was reading on to the next bit there. Um, so very much like um, the the spiritual milk for Boston babes back in the seventeenth century, or Jane Way's examples of uh, moral children. What we have here is a series of um, anecdotal narrative moments in which the children, backed up with plenty of scripture, reflect upon their inherent sinfulness. Um, but again, the inherent contradiction. If we had before the, the author herself being taught Latin, albeit strapped in a board, we have here girls and boys being educated at the same time together um, with their families uh, in dialogic learning of a sort of the kind that's very fashionable and things being published at the time, as I said, the question and answer versions of all forms of education. Uh, so uh, there th- there's a reason why these texts continue to be given other than the blank theology in fact if you look on google books at, at any version there's a version on um gutenberg project gutenberg is digitized from the 1910 edition all of this is gone all of this stuff about original sin and depravity has disappeared by that point and what remains is children talking to their parents about morality children reading books um Children being taught valuable lessons about not trampling each other to death over, over fights over dolls, as we'll we'll see in a second. Um, <laughs> and uh, to, but to give you a taste of this first edition, which was the one that was popular for um from, for the first part of the century, uh, we'll have an inter a section like that. The children will give some verses. Then it will say, "Ooh, that's an occasion for a lovely homily." We'll get a section, then we'll have a hymn that the whole family could sing together. Um, And then this, this there's one of my my favourite bits from early on, is is the father telling you. I'm going to read the whole thing so we can get to Lucy's reaction. The father telling the children some interesting facts from the Bible. Okay women received their dead raised to life again and others were tortured not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection and others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonments they were stoned they were sawn asunder were tempted were slain with the sword they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute afflicted tormented they wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth And all these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some things better for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Oh, Papa, said Lucy, what pretty verses. Yeah, kids love that stuff. Nothing could make a child happier than descriptions of destitution, affliction and torment. So realism is not what we're going for here um, at all. And again, this is not what all children's literature or instructional manuals sound like at the time. Um, the Edgeworths, Maria Edgeworth and her father, Richard Lovell Edgeworth, um, wrote a huge book called Practical Education, uh, first published in the 1790s and then extensively reprinted. That's much more like you would expect educational theory to sound like now it's really very much it's like tom bennett's running the room or something or rosenshine's principles it starts from a sort of anthropology of how children act and then gives you interesting interventions so so their their interest in behavior um is actually hilarious they're like you have to start by making infants agree to do things in order to get them to enjoy doing things so that they automatically start doing things so we have sort of behaviorist Skinnerite right model there. Um, and the example they choose is you have to sternly order them to eat cake. Eat some cake. <laughs> and then they'll eat the cake and they will associate obedience with delicious cake. I mean, I admire this cake-based system of learning. Um, feed the room, running the cake. John Cat Publishers get in touch with me for my cake-based educational theory. But uh, we have something very different in the Fairchild family, which is at war with the Edgeworth model, the more practical, stripped out of, of larger theology model. There's, there's barely anything about God in practical education. It's, it's practical. Um, this one, this religious one, this is aimed at the rising middle classes. I mean, they all are. They're all kind of instructional manuals for for how to improve yourselves and your families and improve literacy and get better. But, but doing it through fear and control and, and boards strapped to you and and the endless display of of corpses and such that's very much the sort of like mode of tracks published for poorer children in what we have before we have a mass literacy education system which is the sunday school movement which is largely run by people like this aren't you glad you tuned in to listen to me <laughs> thank you libby <laughs> uh saying your brain has been blown i'm sure with fascination right so let's go to what actually makes the Fairchild family readable, which is the stories about the total awfulness of children. George Orwell points out when he's talking about this book that um, one of the things is the spectacular naughtiness of all the children when left on their own for even two minutes. (laughs) So actually, as he observes, rather than this this incredibly total depravity based system of education where they spend their entire lives telling the children that they're, they're sinners rather than making them good people it seems to actually amplify their sinfulness <laughs> so uh the, and the, the the parents are always giving examples, so the anecdotes come, from stories from parents, then stories that happen. I can see we've only got eight minutes left, so I'm going to skip the mother's story about how she left her own devices tortured cats and dogs. Which shout out to the 2016 um, Catherine Berbelsing tweet that I love so much about left on their own, children will be trampling dogs and cats right now because that that could be straight from the Fairchild family. Uh and instead we'll go to what Mr Fairchild does when the children fight over dolls, okay? So let me just scroll there. By the way my mother was so fascinated by this book that she's bought an 1818 edition. So um maybe we could have a meet up one day and I'll handle the book. I that will be my idea of a good time probably nobody else is in the world. Right just scrolling past the mother eating cherries in a tree with a servant. Can you imagine the horror? Um Someone falls out. There's always a terrible consequence for sin. Uh, 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 uh. All right, here we go. It's the story of the dolls and Mr. Fairchild. Brace yourselves, people, because this is going to be a wild ride. One morning, as Mr. Fairchild was coming downstairs, he heard the little ones quarreling in the parlour, and he stood still to hearken to what they said. You are very cruel, Lucy, said Henry. Why won't you let me play with the doll? What have boys to do with dolls, said Lucy. You shan't have it. But he shall, said Emily. And the door being half open, Mr. Fairchild saw her snatch the doll from her sister and give it to Henry, who ran with it behind the sofa. Lucy tried to get the doll away from her brother, but Emily ran in between them and accidentally hurt Lucy's foot, which increased Lucy's anger so much that she pinched her sister's arm, whereupon Emily struck her sister. And I do not know what might have happened next if Mr. Fairchild had not run in and seized hold of them. So that's, that's again, that's one of the reasons why the Fairchild family stick around is because that's quite a realistic description of children fighting. Anyway, let's see what Mr. Fairchild does. Mr. Fairchild, however, heard Emily say to her sister, I do not love you, you naughty girl. And he heard the other reply, and I don't love you. I am sure I do not. At the same time, they looked as if what they said was true for the moment, for their faces were red and their eyes full of anger. Mr. Fairchild took the doll away from Henry and taking a rod out of the cupboard, he whipped the hands of all three children until they smarted. Saying, and now fabulously, he recites a poem to them. Let dogs delight to bark and bite, for God has made them so. Let bears and lions growl and fight, for tis their nature too. But children, you should never let such angry passions rise. Your little hands were never made to tear each other's eyes. If you, like me, are a big fan of cautionary tales for children, the sort of Hilaire Belloc model about, you know, Matilda told such dreadful lies, it made one's gasp and stretch one's eyes, and then she burns in a fire because she's a liar. They're simultaneously cautionary tales for children, but they're very funny approaches to this. You can see exactly where they come from when when you hear stuff like this. You may never have heard this book, but it underlies everything you've read of the 19th century. So he makes them stand in the corner of the room, I've got four minutes left, so I'm, I'm going to get to the most exciting thing he does. Uh, neither they didn't get anything to eat in the morning. And what's worse, their papa and the ma looked very gravely at them. Um, and then they get told they're wicked. And then he says, we're going to go for a walk. Because if you'd have a knife, you might have stabbed each other. Okay. Now, the children reject this as being quite unlikely. But Mr. Fairchild's having none of it. And he takes them for a walk. And they're like, papa, mama has told us there's something terrible in the woods here. He's like, oh, yeah, well. Then Lucy and Emily drew behind Mr. Fairchild and walked close together, and little Henry asked John to carry him. The wood was very thick and dark, and they walked on for half a mile, going downhill all the way. Ha, downhill. At last they saw by the light through the trees that they were come near to the end of the wood, and as they went further on, they saw an old garden wall, some parts of which being broken down. They could see beyond a large brick house, which, from the fashion of it, seemed as if it might have stood there a 100 years and now was falling to ruin. The garden was overgrown with grass and weeds. The fruit trees wanted pruning, and it could now hardly be discovered where the walks had been. One of the old chimneys had fallen down, breaking through the roof of the house in one or two places, and the glass windows were broken just near the place where the garden wall had fallen. Just between that and the wood stood a gibbet on which the body of a man hung in chains. The body had not yet fallen to pieces, although it had hung there for some years. It had on a blue coat, a silk handkerchief round the neck with shoes and stockings, and every other part of the dress still entire, but the face of the corpse was shocking that the children could not look upon it. Oh, Papa, Papa, what is that? cried the children. That is a gibbet, said Mr Fairchild, and the man who hangs upon it is a murderer, one who first hated and afterwards killed his brother. When people are found guilty of stealing or murder they are hanged upon a gallows and taken down as soon as they are dead but in some particular cases when a man has committed a murder he is hanged in iron chains upon a gibbet till his body falls to pieces that all who pass may take warning by the example now all who pass take warning by the example is of course the whole mode of the history of the fairchild family the history of anecdotes of of terrible things that will happen if you don't behave if you don't follow the rules because of the innate depravity and sinfulness of your nature because you're a young viper because you were in utero full of disgusting lusts and sins um they lend themselves to the development of the novel quite beautifully really because they are all about increasingly realistic characters engaged in like sinful shenanigans that make them do things and again obsession with rules um with the necessity of incredibly strict rules for children because it's not just their eternal salvation that's at stake it's also their physical health and safety um there's so many apple trees to fall out of as well as to pluck the fruit from infant mortality is high these things matter okay we only have two minutes left i need to play us out but um I will put links up to most of this stuff on Twitter. Um, I would love to talk to more people about the um, the deeply conflicting purposes and ends of these things, of what reader reception might have been, of uh, of how these these very very hardline, incredibly shocking, um, what seemed to contemporary evangelicals almost anti-Christian sort of message to be giving to children, uh, actually are tied very closely to social mobility, um, but mostly just to laugh at them because uh, the Fairchild family's hilarious. It really is. Okay, I think I have one more message from our sponsor I was supposed to have given. Let me just find it. Talk amongst yourselves about original sin while I am at it. There we go. One of our show's sponsors is the History Hotline podcast. Hopefully they'll be doing an episode on Original Sin themselves soon. The History Hotline is the hottest line for all things black history and beyond, a space to have honest conversations about black history and how it impacts the world we live in. The History Hotline podcast explores some of the facets of black history ignored by the mainstream, your teachers and the textbooks. Check out the podcast by following the History Hotline on all good podcast platforms all right bye people do not tread on cats and dogs on the way to school today and have a lovely week i'll be next week next week when i will be 50 years and one day old and our show is going to be about old teachers because i will now be an old
0: teacher goodbye you've been listening to teachers talk radio